Hey, before you start today's episode, I just wanted to jump on in and tell you about something so very exciting. I am holding my first ever summit. The Rise Above Summit is going to be on the 20th and the 21st of March and the tickets to it are free. All you have to do is register at theriseabovesummit.com. Now, I have pulled together the most phenomenal lineup for you. Honestly, it's like a who's who of the online world. So if you have an online business that you want to grow, so you're either a course creator, a membership owner, or a coach and do offer group programs, then this is definitely the summit for you. You are going to learn everything you need to know from the best experts out there in terms of growing that business. Let me just give you a little rundown of some of the speakers that we've got speaking. We've got the amazing Amy Porterfield, who's going to be sharing with us about growing her audience and basically creating a million dollar online business. We've got the phenomenal Michael Hyatt, who is a New York Times bestselling author, who's going to be talking to us about getting organized in our business. We've got Mike from the Membership Guys, who's going to be talking about using free content to sell your online membership. We've got Lucy Street from Adobe Express sharing the secret source of social media. We've got Graham Cochran, who's talking about a million dollar life giving business formula. And I do an amazing interview with him. We have Adrian Salisbury talking about three keys to maximizing your own camera presence. We have Kirsten Miller, Mary Hyatt, Joy Ann Boyce. Uh, we have Fifi Mason, Robin Kennedy. We have Kylie Lang, Melanie Moore, Jen Lena, Natalie Bullen, Liz Mosley. Like the list goes on and on and on. We honestly have the most phenomenal people. We also have various different activities that you can take part in that go from meditation to tapping to doing marketing in 10 minutes. So we've got lots of fun things and there's also competitions to get amazing swag. So go and check out theriseabovesummit.com. It will be linked in the show notes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Go and find it in my social media. Get your free ticket. And after you get your free ticket, you will be given the opportunity to upgrade to our VIP pass. And our VIP pass means that you can watch any of these sessions whenever you want. Because the one thing about putting on such an amazing summit with such a big and amazing lineup is that we can't fit them all in two days. And in order to fit them in, we're doing tracks. So you will get to pick between three different speakers of which one to watch live. And unless you've got the VIP passed, you won't be able to watch the speakers that you've missed. So do check that out as well. It's honestly going to be amazing. I am so very excited about it and I can't wait to see you there. You are listening to the Marketing That Converts podcast, episode 160. You are listening to the Marketing That Converts podcast and I'm your host, Teresa Heathwaring. If you're a marketer, business owner or entrepreneur that is frustrated and overwhelmed with all the constant changes in digital marketing and social media, then you, my friend, are in the right place. Each week, I share with you easy, insightful and actionable steps that you can use to grow your business. So let's get started. Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. How are you doing? How is the beginning of your 2021 going? I hope it's got off to a productive start. Now, I'm jumping in straight away with today's episode because it's an interview and I'm 
really excited to bring this one to you. First thing I need to say is it's a bit different from my normal interviews. One of the amazing things about having a podcast is that I get to interview the most amazing people and hear stories and deliver those stories to you. And sometimes those stories aren't always practical ways in which you can market your business. And sometimes they're not stories about how you can build your business or how someone built their business. And today's episode is a perfect example of this. Now, today I interview the very lovely Roger Cruikshank. Now, Roger was introduced to me via my husband. Now, some of you I'm sure will know because you've listened to the podcast for a while that my husband was in the military. He was in the Royal Air Force for 25 years, I think, in total, and retired last year. And while he was in the Royal Air Force, he skied for for them. He was part of the RAF ski team. Uh, so to say my husband's a good skier is, is a slight understatement, especially as I don't ski at all. And Roger skied in the RAF ski team the same time as my husband. And one night Paul was talking about him and he shared his story with me and shared the fact that, and I'm, I'm keen not to give too much away because it's such an unbelievable story, but shared that a few key things happened in Roger's life. And one of those was that he became a Olympic athlete and actually skied in the Winter Olympics. Also, he's a fighter pilot. So his day job is pretty impressive and scary. He also received a Distinguished Flying Cross in Operations Honours List medal in 2017 for an act of bravery when he saved the lives of Allied soldiers. As if those two things weren't miraculous enough and amazing enough, he has seen so much adversity in terms of accidents and personal health, but really where his story comes together and why he's on the podcast is because now he talks about mental health and the importance of really getting it out there and making sure that we are speaking about mental health. And the reason Roger has done this is because Roger's mother unfortunately committed suicide. And from that moment on, he made it his life's mission to combat the stigma attached to mental health. He's been raising awareness through selling his photographs and selling his book, Speed of Sound, Sound of Mind, which you can get on Amazon. And Roger has managed to raise over £10,000 for charity and he's currently working with charity Heads Together. So, like I said, this is a different episode, but I think you're going to absolutely love it. It was absolute pleasure to talk to Roger, to talk mental health, to talk about the resilience that he got to go on and do the amazing things he got, all while at the same time his poor mother was inwardly battling with her own mental health, which then led to her death. So... I think you're going to love this episode. I think you are going to get so much from Roger and his journey and what he's done. He's a lovely guy. I think you're going to love it. So I'm just going to hand over to Roger. It is with great excitement that today I get to bring to you to the podcast, the amazing Roger Crookshank. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. So, I'm really excited about this episode today for various different reasons, but one of the reasons I'm excited is because my husband knows you personally and was very excited and, and recommended that I get you on because what the stuff he's told me about you is phenomenal. And 
And what has then happened is great. So I, there's so many different things I want to get from this. And I know the audience are going to absolutely love it. But Roger, let's start off, as I always do, with kind of explaining. Now, I know your story is a little bit bigger than most, but explaining how you how you kind of got to being here, like some of the big things that happened to you in, in your journey. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll, I'll try and keep it short and sweet. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think often with um, when we want to do podcasts and, and speak and to lovely people like yourself, and it was so great to catch up with Paul, your husband, before as well. Um, so that the reason why I do this and the reason why I've started this quest and I've been doing this for 10 years is because I've, I wanted to campaign and to raise awareness of mental health and the importance of it. Um, it's something that you know I want to do to help people um, primarily because I, I lost someone uh, very close to me to suicide. And, and that has really changed the way I look at things and you know, what is important to me in life. So um, who am I, I guess, will sort of help with um, where I go with all of this. Uh, so I'm a, a fighter pilot in the Air Force, or I should, I, I'm, I hate to say it, but I'm an ex-fighter pilot because I'm not flying at the moment. Um, and uh, I used to be a British ski racer as well. Uh, so I was in the ski team for a while. Uh, I'm also an author, um, more of which to come. Uh, so I guess to start with my story right from the beginning, and I'll try and keep it short and sweet. Um, I started skiing when I was five. And I broke my leg on my second ever skiing lesson. So there is what was uh, a story That's of what the was to come. Trying to tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wrap me up in cotton wool and put yeah. me in the corner. Um, but uh, no, I, I wouldn't let that happen, as my dad's always told me. So I was um, straight into racing, um, skiing about four years later. So when I was nine, I started skiing and racing and, and never looked back from that point onwards. So wind the clock forward. Uh, I managed to get into the British senior ski team and then at the same time got selected to be a pilot in the Air Force. So therefore to start off training and to, to go through and to then become a pilot. It was a fantastic opportunity that I never thought would align because I always wanted to be a pilot, didn't think I'd be good enough, always wanted to be in the British ski team, didn't think I'd be good enough. And then I managed to, to get those two things lined up. But it was coincident with my parents uh, almost going bankrupt you know it was very close because of the expense of ski racing yeah. and that is actually the reason why I pushed to join the air force because I wanted to carry on skiing but uh, really I had to get a job and I've got two younger sisters as well it just wasn't fair on them so uh, very fortunately I managed to uh, get get into the air force selected a start of going through officer training but unfortunately I had to leave the skiing so there was no you know there was no sort of chance that really I was going to get back into ski uh, racing mm. uh, because I was just signed up to Air Force and that was it. And everyone told me, oh, no, you'll never get back. But uh, amazingly, uh, after uh, this is probably the first time I met your husband as well, Yeah, uh, was was back at the uh, RAF Ski Championships. And you know, it was such a fantastic group. And I mean, even halfway through officer training, when I was going through the initial course, there was people for me. So I hadn't even graduated into the Air Force. There was no even guarantee. And was, so, yeah, Rog, I, uh, I heard you're uh, a pretty good ski racer. Do you want to come and race for us? Uh, we really need you to beat the army. Um, so okay. that, that's, where, that's where it all began. Uh, and then went out to the RAF champs. And this was just as I was waiting to start flying training. So I completed officer training, waiting for flying training. And they said, oh, do you want to uh, delay your flying training? They come out and do the RAF ski championships. I was like, well, okay, why not? You know, so on, I want to keep on skiing. So, uh, and, you know, the, the flying training was only a short delay. So then ended up having, 
you know, a clean sweep at the RAF Championships uh, because, you know, I was, I was, I guess, a professional um, and then coming mm. into the RAF Champs and uh, racing with such a good bunch of people and then went into services all about being the army, um, which we didn't that year, but we did a couple of years later. Well but it was, you know, so <laughs> it, was, it was so good, you know, so uh, luckily I had a clean sweep there as well. And because of this, it, it kind of caught the attention of the RAF seniors who said, so, um, yeah, Rog, like, why did you leave you know, the ski racing behind? Why are you not still ski racing? So I, I explained my story about the money situation and, mm-hmm. and obviously the passion to be a pilot as well as the passion to be a, um, to be a ski racer. So unbelievably, they gave me a sabbatical to, um, to try and continue to um, ski race until the 2006 Olympics. And then I would go into flying training after that. So, I mean, at my stage, with my funding levels, uh and my sort of time in my life it was really the same as me going to university it was the same sort of four-year mm. period so i absolutely welcomed that opportunity uh, you know and it was incredible That's the air force giving me that that is and do you know what really struck me when because obviously i've been with paul about six years now and so and i knew nothing about the military before i was with him so it was a real interesting learning curve about all of it you know about the whole life what you get what it does and the fact that the the military will pay and support you to do something as amazing as that, like that is huge, huge. So basically, they've just paid for you to come and join them. They've paid to train you, and then they've got they've gone. We'll wait for you if you want to go and do that. That is, I don't yeah. know where else in any other world, corporate world, whatever that would happen. Exactly, and I mean, my my hats off to them because. It was, you know, it was about my growth, but then it was about recruitment as well. And and that still continues on to this day. In fact, it was just a couple of weeks ago, I was giving someone advice, a young ski racer, on, on how he potentially could join, not just the RAF, but maybe the military, whatever would work for him. And so to be able to sort of give that wisdom now, I, I look at that and go, you know what, it was worth it. So it was worth it to, to help people. But at the same time, it was just such an amazing opportunity that, mm. you know, and I'll never forget. I was so lucky to get that because if, if it hadn't been for the Air Force, then I would have never managed to achieve my dream. So I guess going back to my story, yeah. um, at, at that point, when the Air Force chiefs gave me the opportunity, I honestly didn't think I could make the qualification because it's quite a, um, a tough qualification to get to Olympics in the first place. So I was very... Um, um, open about that and said I'm not sure if I'm good enough but then it was my it's always been my problem is I'm not um, I guess confident enough with my abilities so I just stuck to it and then I got faster and faster and I actually started going oh wait I, I think I can do this and then it would have been 2005 I um, had my best ever result in a in a North American Cup which is like the second tier down from the World Cup the World Cup being okay. the top and I um, I was like a a back a guy at the back um you know a, a scotsman starting with like bib number 35 ranked you know way outside the top and i actually finished i remember crossing the line it was a fast uh, downhill course that day we we clocked about 146 kilometers an hour on that race it was really icy and fast i remember uh, pushing my hand for the finish line coming to a stop and then hearing a gasp from the um commentator and then and who is this? Who is this Scotsman? He's just knocked, um, I think it was John Kachera off the podium. So I went yeah. on to third and John Kachera actually ended up becoming a world champion as well. So it, it was just an amazing time where I finally 
you know, everyone came, everything came to fruition and I, yeah. and I achieved my goal of, of making the qualification for the Olympics. So, so that was it. I was going to the Olympics, but then this is where my roller coaster began. Um, <laughs> so it was only, I think about eight days later. So that was out in Canada. We, we flew back to Germany for a race and it was a really low level race in, in Germany as we're building up to the Olympics uh, or sorry, uh, to a few different um, competitions. The Olympics was about um, 10 months later. And at that point, I was uh, going for it a little bit too much in this race in Germany and fell on my inside on the ice, tried to push myself back up. But then I ended up at the same time pushing my outside leg into the snow and I hyperextended it and then twisted it at the same time. Um, So in in other words, I I punched my femur, so your thigh bone, into the top of my shin bone. (laughs) Uh, so shattered my left leg. It, it was, I'm not laughing because it's funny. It was, <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm about to vomit. <laughs> ah. It was painful. It was I, oh I've you God. know I've broken quite a few bones in my body, but that was ridiculously painful. So they then took them quite a while to figure out what was going on. And again, long story short, they had to go in. They, they took lots of different scans, couldn't figure out what was wrong. They had to go in for an arthroscopy where they they go into the knee and have a look around. And with that, he sort of pre-warned me, he said, well, if I find something, then I might have to operate and do all the surgery straight there. But otherwise, I'm just mm-hmm. going to go in and have a look. Next thing I know, I, I wake up, um, just sort of coming to off morphine. And he says, yeah, well, Rog, uh, you've now got a lot of melt work in there, mate. And then I kind of went back off on morphine again. Oh, and then man. I woke up and I found, you know, like a whole bunch of staples on my leg a blood blood dripping out into a bag on my leg and I'm like uh nurse what's going on what's yeah. going on my leg and then she she eventually showed me the the x-ray so um put nine pins nine titanium pins and a plate so the plate's about half the length of my shin bone and and then it's like a scaffolding technique so as you can imagine absolutely crushed because devastating uh, yeah I, I'd lost my flying category so my medical category to be a pilot and then obviously lost my chance to go to the Olympics as well because oh the the Olympic Committee or the, the British uh, team, they said, well, you have to prove your form again because of the extent of the injury, we can't just give you a free ticket to the Olympics. You've got to prove your form um, and then you can go. So in other words, I had to qualify again. So, I mean, after that elation to this crushing yeah. uh, crash, and then found myself on, on hospital in this leg bending machine trying to get you know degrees, as many degrees I mean, it was, it was, I remember going like 0.2 of a degree up and going, yes, that's great success. So I was, I was absolutely on a mission though, to prove everyone wrong. Cause I'd heard of stories of people breaking legs, you know, to extent of my, and getting back on skis. So I thought I'm going to do that. And that, that was it. I was like Herman Meyer, the Austrian great, you know, a great skier, you know, he had done something similar in a motorbike crash. So I was like, right, I'm going to do that. So, um, again, long story short, I managed to get on skis six months later, uh, which was a miracle supposedly from the doctors and the physios um, with a lot of pain. So I had a big knee brace and ibuprofen and, and then it became quite a lot, a mental battle as well. So trying to get over the pain and then face my demons because you're, if you feel pain, then your body then remembers where that pain came from, from a previous um, scenario. So every time I was feeling that pain, it was sort of almost reminding me of my crash. So it was trying to block that out and then, avoid the pain where I could so it was it was quite tricky but to be honest that's where all this positive mindset 
came in, instead of having like a negative coach on my shoulder, you know, a lot mm. of people say that you you have someone, you know, like a, a coach on your on your shoulder, wherever yeah, yeah. it wants to be, get, giving you unfriendly or unhelpful advice. So it was like turning that into positive advice where, you know, actually um, it, it was all a, if I felt the pain, then the way I could get around that was to straighten my leg, to stand up more. And actually in ski racing, that can be faster. So it was trying to manipulate, you know, these thoughts and go, well, if I'm thinking that, then I can focus on this. That'll get rid of the pain. That'll make me faster. I want to be faster. That's how I'll achieve my goal. Do you think that was something that was in you? Like, obviously now what you do today, you understand the the kind of mechanics behind the positive thinking and, and the brain and how it works. But do you think then looking back, that was just you? Because that that is a big thing to go through and then go, but I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to show people this. That's huge. So it's, yes, it's, it's a good question. Cause I honestly, so there was a, a stigma in the team about um, let's not call it mental health. Cause we didn't refer to it as mental health, but head coaching. So, mm-hmm. so sports psychologist, uh, sports psychology. So we found that, you know, some of the people too were like, oh, no, that's rubbish. I don't need someone to tell me how to think. But then, and at the time when I broke my leg, I was mandated to go and see a psychologist down at the um, Olympic Medical Institute. And that's where I was waiting for my surgery and stay with them. They're a fantastic team. And I met the psychologist and she was trying to explain to me that there was gremlins in my leg and that I need to focus on on X, Y, and Z. And I tell you, it just didn't work. You know, she, she just didn't have me. I, di- I didn't, I didn't get it. So yeah. So at that point, I was like, no, I'm still I'm definitely not interested. But then once again, I was mandated by the British ski team this time to go and see someone else called Don, Donald McNaughton. Don McNaughton, he's a good friend of mine. And as I, I didn't know him at the point, um, went up to Inverness, road trip up to see him, and just instantly talking to him, it was all about logic and structure. And if you're yeah. thinking this, it's because of this. If this is happening, it's probably because of this. And he applied um, a really nice way of thinking to me where I could get around it. So I instantly at that point actually fell in love with sports psychology and how it could help me, like the power of the of the mind. And then I started looking into it a bit more. I started hearing the Canadians were doing some big things at the time with their uh, ski racing team and making some big advances. And then it just it just started to come up and up in, um, in, in people's awareness that this was a good thing. This is going to make them faster. And of course, I needed that. I needed something to get around the pain and what I was facing with my leg. So, yeah, I definitely went through the process of not believing in it to being an utter believer. And then as we're going to my story, then, of course, that cemented all these things that, that happened to me. Yeah. So, um, again, wind the clock forward a little bit. I, I was racing in Europa Cup. It was my absolute last chance to qualify for the Olympics. And I'd been training so hard and I was just, I was living and breathing qualifying for Olympics. That's all I had. The Air Force, once again, had said, you know what, you can do a little bit of work, but actually just focus on um, get, getting yourself back on skis and getting to the Olympics because that is, that's what we want you to do. And then you can go into flying training after that. Um, so that's what I did and got into this uh, single event and I had nothing to lose. That was almost the best thing about it. And I remember absolutely going for it. But, and this is not just as part of the story. I actually had a horrible situation where I fell on my inside once again in this race, going a lot faster, going about 60, maybe 70 miles an hour. But then this time, because I was so driven to do it, I pushed myself back up, luckily got my skis to grip 
and I carried on. But the the adrenaline, oh, I mean, goodness. maybe the adrenaline helped, but the, the spike yeah. of adrenaline, because I thought, you know, all the thoughts came back and the, I could almost feel the pain from what I'd had before because I, you know, yeah. had this flashback. Anyway, got down to the finish. It was a bit loose, but it was fast. And um, massive jump into the finish. Uh, it was about a 70-meter jump to the finish, crossed the line, and I looked at the score. And actually, the first thing I saw was my physiotherapist, Sandy Lyle, because we were just... Um, were thick and thin she was the one who really helped me she had so much yeah. faith in me and she's jumping going crazy going berserk and then uh, I looked up at the scoreboard and I'd done it I'd gone into the a top 20 position um, and it, so I ended up qualifying by six hundredths of a second for the Olympics oh my um, so it was just I mean and then coming off the the ski slope and getting into it I, I found you know my phone was off the hook by journalists hearing my story and affording it was just such a an overwhelming oh. experience I can't even imagine, like, can't even imagine. So you get to go and do the Olympics, which is something that I'm positive nearly everyone listening to this will not have the faintest idea what that experience is like. So that must have been huge. Yeah, it, it was, it, yeah, it was um, an overwhelming experience, but something I just cherished because at the time I knew it was probably going to be my last, or and it was my last proper skiing you know, high level experience. Yeah. So, to, to, but to have a press conference to announce my retirement at the age of 23, you know, at the Olympics yeah. in Italy, in Turin, it was just bizarre. It was that absolutely bizarre. But, but then for me, it was, in, it was really good because I, I finished up on that high and then I accepted because I couldn't really continue ski racing because of the extent of damage to my leg. It was just going to yeah. cause a lot of issues in the long run. Um, although I've just recently signed up to an Ironman. That's just, that's a good story. <laughs> Um, and then, so at that point, I was like, right, let's get into flying training. Let's get on with it. So again, why the... It's not like you hadn't just done something flipping unbelievable, like, you know, I was in the Olympics. So then it's like, oh, I'll just go back to my day job, which happens to be going to be flying a amazing fighter plane thing. Like, what the hell? That's <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, it was, um, it, it was, it was always my, my dream. So you know, this ambition of, and I think because it was so sweet or so much sweeter for me because I really thought that was it. You know, when I lost my medical category, I didn't think I'd ever get back into mm -hmm. flying. But because I skied in the Olympics, they had no leg to stand on. Sorry for the pun. Um, um, so, so so, it meant that um, I, I was just so up for it. And because I could take all that ambition I'd had in skiing and I could then get into the flying and get stuck into the flying so that's what I did and I always wanted to fly Typhoon that's all I ever Eurofire to Typhoon that's all I ever wanted to do so I was so driven to get into the fast jets um as they as they call it so it's rotary um so helicopters fast jets or, or multi-engines you know that I'm just talking to the viewer uh, so uh, or the listener I should say um so uh, as I then uh, went through the process uh, and it was all going quite well you know there's some bit of a roller coaster um, but generally the flying was going well and then I finished elementary flying training so the first course went out to America uh, and it was my first holiday in quite a while um, because of all the craziness with the skiing and then it straight into the flying and then went to have like five days out in Lake Tahoe and rented out a mountain bike mountain bike collapsed on me so the front suspension just came out of itself as I was going along a flat surface would you believe and uh, and I went face first into the dirt snapped my yeah. face um across the L5 maxilla facial um and broke my nose and then ripped my face apart down here as well um, oh my god 
So I, I don't really remember much about that uh, at all. And then I, I wake up in the hospital, I think a, a day or two later when I really got my, my head back, uh, figured out what was going on. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't speak at the time. So I was having to write questions like, where am I? What's going yeah, on? What the hell is going on? Uh, and then how am I going to pay for this? Because it turned out that the um, insurance I had, so I, I had insurance from all my skiing, but that actually run out about two weeks before for the, like, oh the extreme God. sports. I did have travel insurance, but it didn't cover mountain biking. So I didn't have any insurance. So I had oh about $65,000 worth of, of medical expenses because I got airlifted from, well, from um, actually Cal Lake Town, California, over to Nevada to Reno Hospital. So then I had to get a lawyer um, because I, I didn't have the money to pay for it. And they said, well, actually, there's something fishy going on here. Why did your bike collapse? And it, it turned out that the front suspension just came apart for no reason. So um, not to name names and to reopen the case again, but the, the case went on for two years and I had two different lawyers working for me uh, because they had to be aware of the different law in the two different states. Yeah. And eventually got a bit of a payout, which covered the medical expenses. Oh, um, God. But, and, and luckily, you know, managed to get a Porsche out of it. So I was, I was happy, uh, but it was, it was, <laughs> it was just a Smash crazy my face time. Up, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was definitely not worth it, but uh, for, I, I do like Porsches, so it was okay. But um, I mean, I was, I was on, I was on, I had four metal coils in my face, I should say that. So more metal in my, in my face, which is, uh, all my metal work is still here today. So you're slowly becoming bionic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's annoying with um, uh, when you walk through, through airport scanners. Airport security. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got anything metal on you? No, I've got a lot in me, though. Uh, yeah, so. exactly. And I've got the scars, <laughs> if that helps. Um, yeah. So, so I do always carry the, the X-ray uh, pictures on my phone as well, just in case. <laughs> yeah. I love it. So did that stop you again, then, from... Because obviously, this isn't something I necessarily understood. I obviously understand that, you know, you have medicals and you have fitness tests and you have all these things that kind of have to be kept up to you know scratch but so did that stop you then flying again yeah so once again I was um I was absolutely gutted because my medical category had been taken away so I I, I was on um on soft food so baby food really and Ben and Jerry's amazing tubs of ice cream for three months <laughs> I know exactly get the calories in um, so for yeah for three months that's all I could do and I was wearing what was like a, a brace but not on my teeth but on, on my gums and then every night I had to attach elastic bands to these hooks in the metal brace to keep my jaw set so that I wouldn't oh, open it at night so it, it was when I look back now it's really traumatic um, you know much like the the ski racing injury as well the, the leg injury but then again I was so driven and I, and I mean that it, and I say this to a few people, it's quite hard to understand. Like, even though I was going through that, that pain and that trauma, I was almost the happiest I've ever been because I had a clear vision. You know, so when I bust my leg, I was so driven to get back and qualify for the Olympics. That's all that mattered. I had such a clear focus. And then once again, when I smashed my face in and I was, you know, there with my Ben and Jerry's, I, I knew exactly what I had to do to... to to um well I, I mean i think that was the hardest thing with my face though there's only so much i could do apart from listen to the doctors and the dentists and just do the correct thing and, and stick to the game plan and give my body this the, the best chance of recovery but then i had to go and see the ear nose and throat specialist who who cleared me i remember he put a camera up my nose um as in yeah i think i can't remember what it's called but a camera on the end of a 
this sort of bendy yeah. wire, put it into my face, and I was watching in front of a big old school television, and I could see this having a look at you know inside my face and my sinuses as I'm streaming with tears. Yeah. Uh, but but you know what? I think my sinuses were actually better. They grew back better after that, which is um, there we go, silver lining. Um, and that would help me to know. be a typhoon pilot. <laughs> you just so, never then, so the universe has dealt you quite a few issues by this point, as if to go, don't do it. No, seriously, this isn't for you. <laughs> uh, if you get in one of those planes, God knows what's going to happen, because I can't keep you safe on the ground, let alone <laughs> in a plane that goes incredibly fast. Um, <laughs> so you then get to do the job that you've been trying to do for, for years, and, you know become this like fighter pilot I don't know if I'm using the right terminology um that's right then you do some pretty spectacular stuff while you're in the military in terms of uh there was a situation where you got a medal because you you might have to explain this because obviously I don't know the ins and outs properly but yeah you met Prince William didn't you yeah that's right yeah so it was the um I went out to Operation Shader which was the fight against Daesh um um, out in Iraq and Syria. So yeah. uh, I sp- spent a lot of time, you know, flying over Iraq and Syria and trying to help out the, the groups and uh, the troops on the ground, um, our allies. Uh, so, yeah, I was in a, a very sticky position with that. Um, but, I mean, to be honest, it, it's a fighter pilot's dream to be able to to be in a position where you can do your job and save someone's life. It really is, because you do so much training, and the training quite often counts for... Well, not, not let's say nothing, but not much. But mm. I, I was, um, you know, I made some big calls that day, and but but I knew I had the training behind me, and I'm I'm really just so proud of how that went because it was. They always say um, train hard, fight easy, but that day was fight hard. It was there's so many things going on. It was so busy, and it was just like trying to prioritize and go like, well, okay, I need to focus on that. And it was always obviously to to save the people on the ground. Um, and we managed to do that and, and to have that, you know, because that's not always the case. You're not always in that position. But to, it was so busy as well. The mission, I remember thinking all the way home it was like an hour and a half to fly home. Um, and I'm sitting in there going, just going over and over the scenarios. Yeah. And what did I do? Did I do the right thing there? And I, I, I made this fuel calculation um, where we had to sort of to drop down to lower fuel um, and take a, a riskier decision to perhaps divert into what was a hostile airfield at the time but it meant that we we shouldn't run out of fuel as if we if we don't have any problems so therefore that's one variable out the way so we'll lower the fuel and then it means that we can save these guys lives and so I chose to do that and uh, you know I, I think that's one of the reasons where it was recognized but but yeah so I got that awarded at Buckingham Palace by Prince William uh, which is just amazing. I met him a couple of times before that because um, I went through flying training with him and when he was uh, at Linton on News. Yeah, yeah. So to, to get to, um, and I remember we were sort of told not to moiter him, you know, not to give him too much attention yeah. because he's Prince William, but but we ended up having a good chat. We just randomly bumped into each other as we're walking from the mess and from his room and from uh, where the officer's mess was, I think. We came and, of course, chatting away and he was so excited because that, that was the day that he was going to go solo um, for the first time in the Tucano at Lintel News. Um, so it was really nice to get to know him a bit there, you know, was, yeah. uh, and to sort of get the uh, idea of, of what he was actually like. And, you know, absolutely top guy. I'm just so... And 
what he's doing now with Heads Together as well. So I started raising money for Heads Together with all my mental health uh, fundraising because of meeting him and getting to know him. And also because he's he's decided to expose himself about his mum and his own mental health battles. And I think that's um, fantastic. So to then have him um, award me the DFC at Buckingham Palace and it's for like him to... such a cherry on the cake, isn't it? It, it was, it really was. And because I mentioned my mum at that point, uh, I mentioned what happened at that point. And, you know, he was, um, he, he, we only had so many minutes, you know, a couple of minutes yeah. to talk, but it was just so nice what he said. And, you know, he, he quickly sort of processed that and said, well, she would be so proud of you, you know, being here today and what you've done. And, and he then actually, I could see all, all the social media lit up because he was um, helping me and his team, because it was only, myself and him that heard that conversation because because of where we were and it's quite quiet and obviously we couldn't we didn't want to speak about something like that very loud yeah but he definitely blew up my social media after that you know just as in t- to help me because he believed in what I was saying about mental health and he obviously went in and had a look so it was it was really nice to, to be part of all that yeah yeah so let's let's talk about that then so obviously you have had this roller coaster of amazing life and and done these things that people could only dream of but also had these huge challenges that really quite honestly any bog standard person would have gone I'll probably just leave it there um but like you didn't and you carried on to these amazing things but obviously you had the the awful tragedy of what happened to your mum so are you okay just talking about that and then how that encouraged you to do what you do today really yeah of course and um you know and Although this is always hard for me to talk about, it's 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 what I feel I must do, and that's you know, like right back to the why um, I'm I'm here speaking uh, to your lovely self is because I want to help people, and I know that this is how I can help people because it's what helped me. So, yeah, I, I lost my mum to suicide. She she took her own life, and it was completely out of the blue. I remember when my, my dad phoned to tell me, and it was just such a shock. I mean, I, I was standing upright in it and I got the, the call from him and I remember just collapsing to the ground with the phone clattering on the ground beside me. I just couldn't get my head around it, it was so alien and it, it still feels so alien to this day. Like, why would you do that? Where did this come from? There was no warning signs, there was nothing, or especially not at the time. And, you know, through, through that, I then found obviously the grief and, and dealing with the, the the loss and the shock. And I was very close to my mum. Like my parents divorced um, quite a few years before this. And then me and my sisters were all very close to both our parents individually. Um, but I think, you know, I, I felt I was very close to um, my mum for, for all sorts of reasons. And, and, and through that, I, you know, I was very busy at the time and I was having to organise all, all the funeral and everything. And, and, I, and I, I think I went into coping. That was my coping mode, going 100 miles per hour. And that didn't stop for a few years. And just going 100 miles an hour, trying to sort everything out. And um, and I, I remember going back to see, sort of back into what was normal life. Um, so training to be an instructor actually at that point on the Hawk jet. Um, so I was, I was training to instruct people on, on jets. And uh, at that point, going to see my my mates who I, who I lived in the in the house with it, um, in North Wales, and I couldn't even tell them what happened. You know that I really yeah. faced that stigma, and it was so it was so obvious to me 
that it wasn't because I was ashamed of what my mum did. I, I, I never will be. Um, but it was that I, I almost didn't want to, to drag people down. I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't know if yeah. they would, I, I didn't want to sort of um, create this negative atmosphere. Um, but actually it ended up me bottling it up, not being able to talk to them about it. So therefore not being able to talk to anybody outside my family about it. And I, and I felt this massive weight on my shoulders. So uh, I eventually went, right, I, I need to do something about this. And um, with social media, uh, I, I then went, you know what, I'm going to raise money and I'm going to start talking more honestly about suicide and the effects mm -hmm. of it. And then I can talk about my mom and I can talk about what happened and, and therefore maybe I can, uh, I can help people and, and it'll help me as well. Because I remember that go through the grief when I lost my mom, um, what really helped me was reading other people's stories of, of what happened to them and their loved ones and losing their loved ones and how they'd coped and how they got their head around it because I felt it was just so alien. So those stories and that sharing the stories really helped. So I ended up um, actually selling my photographs for charity because I was really lucky as an instructor sitting in the back of the, the Hawk jet so I could take all these different photos and then I started selling for charity. And in using that, I use that platform to say, and the reason I'm raising money for charity is um, then talk yeah. about the story of losing my mum. And then the feedback I got was just phenomenal of, of people, you know, telling me how brave I was for getting my story out there mm. and, and, and being open and honest about it. And then I really started to get in my head around the stigma attached to mental health. I really started to get... Um, addicted to reading about psychology and starting to understand myself. I did a lot of inward looking because I was in some really dark places. And, you know, you like I remember applying, let's say, a, a bit of alcohol to that. And it would just I was so confused. I was so um, I, I didn't know how to compute this. I was I was missing this key role, this person who was such a key role in my life um, and, and everything became affected by that you almost start to like question what is the purpose of life when you lose a key role like that and to, so it started to sorry you go for it sorry look, I was just gonna say and to lose her in the way that you did you know I shared with you before we respect recording that obviously and and the listeners know that my mum passed away and that losing that role full stop is is huge and I don't think I appreciate appreciated that at the beginning and I'm still only you know six months into this but but I did exactly the same as you. I went straight into organizer role. I do stuff. I keep myself very busy. And but it's those times of you know, oh, I'd let my mum know that. Or it hit me when you know you have your mum loves you unconditionally. She is the one person in this world that will love you no matter what. I'm not saying my dad doesn't love me unconditionally. My dad is a very different character to my mum. Like yeah. my mum would has much more loving motherly instincts than my dad does. Yeah. And, and suddenly that hit me one day of, oh my God, that person's gone. Like the one mm. person that loves me, no matter what, the one person that's there for me, no matter what is not there anymore. And although yeah. I have an amazing husband and I have beautiful children and stepchildren and I have my family, it's not the same. They're not the same. So yeah. one, that is, is huge, but two, I can't imagine where your head was at in the fact that she committed suicide because like I don't know that I've, I've been angry I think 
I've been angry at the time because my mum died very, very quickly and, and none of us expected it and between diagnosis and dying. So I feel a bit like, or I have felt angry about that was robbed from us and we couldn't, we couldn't go and see her because of COVID. So we literally went in at the point she was dying, which we yeah. were very lucky that we got to do that actually. But I don't know how, how I would feel being in your situation and you know, and there must, your head, the thoughts that must be going around it, as if grief isn't challenging enough anyway. Yeah. The the questions, the the thoughts, the angry about you, about you, them, about everything, like, it must have been one of the hardest times. Yeah, there, there are so many questions that surround suicide. It's like that, um, the, the spider web that goes out and affects so many people in so many different areas. Uh, so... For me, it was the questions. And as you say, that all the different stages uh, or different emotions, you know, the obviously the grief, the the real dark sadness, and, and then there was the the anger, the anger at her, the anger at me for you know thinking oh, I didn't do you start asking yeah, how questions. Did I not know? Yeah, exactly. You start blaming yourself. And I, I mean, I'm very lucky in that I'm very close to my sisters. And, and my dad and you know we were able to all talk about it and get ourselves up to a place that we were um you know we we became a very strong unit you know we were before yeah. but we became even stronger because we had to deal with it and, and my younger sister Emily is 10 years younger than me so at, at that time in her life um it was well it, it really did really difficult for all of us but she was I think 17 or 18 at the time so it, it was just just so so hard and then the the second order effects of of how it affected all of us and you know all down the years you know we we have become stronger but it's taken a, a long time for us to get there you know as a family and, and always getting through it um but and I, and I think that's you know that's what I became to realize is the the power of the mind so therefore looking into mental health awareness and and understanding all these thoughts and, and where is it taking me? Why is it taking me there? Uh, what do I need to focus on? You know, things like, as you said, and we were talking about before, I still have that lovely feeling of every now and again, I instinctively go to pick up the phone to call my mom to tell her something. And I, I never go, I never think, oh, that's silly. She's not around. I just go, oh, that's a nice feeling, you know, it's because it, because yeah. I still remember and I still love her. And it, it doesn't mean I'm, I'm, um, kidding myself into anything it just means that I still feel she's around she's part of me you know and yeah. she's part of my story mm. um and I, and I think over the um over the years I've I've also now understand and I think this is my greater understanding of mental health is that the key is acceptance so mm. for me it, it took me a while and I think I was bottling up and almost like trying to push it to the side but as an example now it was just a couple of weeks ago I was watching a film and something triggered me and you know and I end up in floods of tears and yeah. you know, I'm not really the, the kind of guy who does that but then um at the same time I go you know what this is happening for a reason and I just let it go and I just accept it so acceptance is so it's been part of my healing and to, to be able to accept it, to feel it, to really feel it, and then let it go. Because if you don't really feel it, then you'll never accept it. And therefore, it'll always be on the, on the side. And it's really hard to, to do anything with that. It's always like this thing that's always nagging at you, which then leads to anxiety, which then leads to stress. And I, and I really do think it's all connected. 
Um, and, I, and so, so as I, uh, you know, as I was saying before, as, as I found this, the feedback I was getting from people saying that I was helping them from almost raising my head above the parapet, maybe it's a military term, and, and, saying, um, and saying that um, this is my story, this is why I'm being open and honest about it, and, and I, I want you to know how important mental health is and, and what it's all about. Um, I then, someone then said to me, oh, you should, um, you should write a book with all these stories, Rog. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, like it, it makes, makes sense. Well, why haven't you already? And I was like, write a book, only just got through English at school. Yeah. Um, just so I could get into the Air Force um, and then I, I kind of sat down and I thought about it and I, I thought back to that guy Dominic Norton who I mentioned before who's um, he, he's a performance coach and head performance coach and on getting chatting to him I said well you've written a couple of books Don what do you think about this so we eventually wrote a book called Speed of Sound Sound of Mind and that was the with the intention of, of sharing my experience so obviously I put all these experiences as we've spoken about today with with a bit more and then a bit more meat in the bone and then a bit of Don McNaughton's his backstory but but with him as a high performance coach he can apply some of the the brain science to it as well Uh, and the the book has been a fantastic way of it it was so therapeutic to me you know and and this is what when I was when I was thinking about this before and I've got more and more into reading about stoicism and you know, the, the Stoic this Stoic philosophers like <clears throat> Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, he used to always journal almost every day and, you know, you can go and dig them out. And, you know, so Aurelius, for the listeners, um, obviously the, or maybe not obviously, but the Roman emperor. And then there was a Seneca who I think was a, he was like a high ranking financial clerk. So these guys would journal. So it, I've been trying to link everything up. I was like, the reason they journal is because they they wanted to make sense of everything. And I think that's why I, from writing my book, it was so therapeutic for me because I could make sense of everything, write it down. And then I, I started Googling, as you do, journaling, and seeing how it's so good for your stress and anxiety to reduce those um, levels of stress and anxiety because you're starting to make sense of your thoughts. And then, I, it, and then it sort of links to my book where it's like, well, and this is how we do things. We share stories and we storytell. That's how they always used to do it. We learn more, it turns out, from storytelling. If someone tells you something like five straight facts and then they comparatively tell you a story with those five straight facts, you might remember, but with the five straight facts, you won't remember. And that I found is, is fascinating. And, and therefore, with me and you know being busy in the current job and everything, my book and my you know the awareness that I try to create on, on Facebook and Instagram that is my way of doing it, I guess. So, and that, that is obviously why I'm why I'm so passionate, why I'm here talking to you. Yeah, yeah. So, there's some charities that you support that you work with, and I don't want to talk about them, but I just want to come back to a couple of things. Like, there's a few things that really jump out at me as you're talking, and and the first one is the the situation I guess you were in, where all these things kept happening to you, and your strength of mind got you through them your unbeknownst that was the case maybe at the, at the time and you mentioned earlier and I wrote it down it's because you had a clear vision of where you were going what you were doing and that kept your mind kind of focused on the end goal whether you believed or not that end goal would come you knew that's where you were headed so the first thing you know anyone listening to this and we talk about it all the time but this is just such an amazing practical way to to demonstrate it is 
is we need that. We need to set our goals. We need to set our visions. We need to know where we're going because otherwise we're just going to flounder. You wouldn't have done what you'd done if that hadn't yeah. been the case. Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing that, that strikes me, which feels so hard to even kind of say, is that you had this strength of mind and unbeknownst to you, your mum didn't. And your mum was going through something that obviously you're not able to have that conversation with her to find out and and the conversation didn't happen at the time. And just almost, it feels like one end of the spectrum to the other. It feels like, look at what having that strength of mind can do and look at what you achieved in your world. And then, and then you had the awful experience of how the mind can ruin someone too. You know, how they can they can make them feel in such a place to do something like that. And, and I, I, I mentioned before, and I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before that my dad was, was very unwell and he had a complete breakdown and he tried to commit suicide a number of times, a number of different ways. And thank goodness he didn't succeed. And, and, you know, he, he had a good go to be fair to him, but he didn't succeed. And, and he got the help he needed and it was very dramatic help and it was long-term help and, and he got better. But I remember at the time, because we did have the experience of, and I was fairly young, I guess I'd have been in my 20s, early 20s. And we did have the experience of having these conversations with him there. And I remember getting so upset going, I don't know what to do. What are we meant to do? Like if mm. someone breaks their arm, you tell us, right, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And we're going to do this and that. And this is how they broke their arm. And this is how we fix a broken arm. But with, with your mind, they literally sat there, these amazing experts, these doctors, these nurses, and they're like, no idea. Like, yeah. we don't know what caused him to do this. We have no idea, you know, what, because he, at one point he, um, and, and it's funny as I'm talking, I'm thinking that I hope it doesn't mind me. Not that he'd ever hear this, by the way, because he certainly, he barely knows what a podcast is, let alone listen to one. <laughs> um, but like at one point, um, he 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 wanted to escape. He was in a mental hospital and he wanted to leave. And we used to go and see him all the time. We were there, like one of us was there pretty much 24 seven. And he would get really upset and he would beg us to take him home. And obviously I'm his youngest daughter and he's a big, strong man. And and I was just like, what do I do? Do I laugh it off? Do I cry? Do I, you know, regardless of what I actually felt, I don't know how to respond to this. Mm. And they were like, we don't know. So, you know, for me, that really made me realise, and it's funny you talk about journaling because I journal every day and mm. have done for quite a few years. And, but that made me realise how fragile your mind is and mm. and that we do need to work at these things and we do need to try harder them so so those are the first couple of things and then the other thing I just want to touch on before we move on to, to what you're doing now and helping and is the reason I wanted to bring you on is because you are military and I could imagine if I said to my audience name one industry that does not want to talk about you know or show the vulnerability of this is how I feel, this is what's happened to me, and talk about mental health, military would be it. You know, whether we're right or wrong, we yeah. would make the assumption that, you know, well, I I live with a military man and there are some ways that, like, I'm telling you, and this is not a joke, I had to train Paul so that when I cried, for whatever reason, he didn't go, why are you crying? Like, literally. <laughs> <laughs> why, what, what's, and at one point he was like, what's coming out of your eyes? Like, he, honestly, <laughs> I mean, I think it was a bit silly then, but, but literally I've had to say to him, right, 
if I get upset, and especially now, because like the other day I was watching this advert of this, it was the Branston Pickle advert. Don't watch it, by the way, if you haven't already seen it, the Christmas <laughs> ad, because, because she calls, her mum's been trying to get hold of her and she's busy as we all were and our lives are. And anyway, she eventually gets hold of her mum and she's like, hi mum. And, and just even hearing that, it's like, oh God, I, yeah. I'd love that if I could yeah. do that. So again, I see this ad and just start crying and, and I've had to teach him like, you know, maybe you stroke my arm, maybe go, are you okay? Don't go, why are you crying? Like, <laughs> he's very much like... And I of course, uh, and that's a very standard thing, isn't it? That, that fixer response. I mean, I oh. have, I've gone through this, that as well. And it's, um, you could say, you know, a lot of males suffer from this, not just the military, where yeah. if I see a problem, I want to fix it. And so I've I've had uh, very similar conversations with my lovely wife Katie. Um, so, but no, but thank you. And I want to first of all say, you know, thank you to you for being so open and honest about your mum and your dad. You know, because it, it you saying that in front of your audience, you know, will help so many countless people. And I think it's so important uh, because we need to normalise these conversations. It is absolutely well we know that but it's absolutely 100% fine to talk about these things and to because it is it happens to everybody so why don't we just speak about it um and when you you know you said about uh, you know my mum and and on I guess different sides of the spectrum I think with my mum that the thing is as well she was a, a nurse so she was an NHS nurse for over 35 years so she was a strong person and I think that's why we I could never detect that she would have even thought about doing uh, about taking her life um but I do remember one uh conversation and this is what always strives or drives me on to to try and make a difference as she said because she was she was really being very negative being she was in a really sort of down place just just generally unhappy and, and I remember sitting down to her and saying mom <clears throat> I really I really want want you to to go and get some help because you're just not yourself you don't you you're not um you just don't seem as as happy and and, and I just want you to be happy so uh, so at that point you know with hindsight um my sisters and I both think she was suffering from depression um but again we've all got to remember that that was my mum so for all my adult years she was probably suffering from depression the whole time so therefore it was just my mum that was normal so we, you know, I could pick up the phone and I can know what kind of mood she was in based on the first five seconds of the phone call, just because of her response and how she came across. So, you know, so and you became, as you're saying, being such a key role, you became or become very aware of, of what they're feeling and how they're responding. Um, but her instant response to me asking her to go and get help was, oh, no, I, I couldn't go and do that. It would just be too awkward with the people I work with. You know, so the, the mental health experts that she worked with daily, she just couldn't go and have a conversation about them. So, yeah. you know, now that that's what makes me think and or make I, I know that that has to change because I, I don't look at it as that that could have helped because there's there's always quite a few things that feed into these. Yeah. When someone makes the courageous choice of taking their life, because that's the, the thing it's quite hard to get your head around is actually for them to actually yeah. do that. It's a massive decision. And. And you're fighting every, um, you're fighting your body to have to do that, to, to almost make it do that. And and this is what I learned about my my mum, is she'd actually done things like gone to see my best friend, you know, randomly. She would never go and just randomly visit my best friend. 
um, up in Bray Mawr, but she had done. And he told me this months after. I said, when did she go to visit you? And he said, oh, a few days before she took her life. And I went, oh, and it was like a really sort of yeah. quite a, a, a strange thing to get your head around where she had obviously sort of made this decision and she was joining things up making sure everyone was fine and then she was and then she took her own life and and you just think yeah you could say that she wasn't mentally strong but then on one one side of the coin you could say she was very mentally strong because you knew exactly what what she wanted to do but but it's still it, the root cause and i always think about that it's my fighter pilot stuff comes out of me it's like the, the, the debrief the root cause where did it all come from and i think is from the fact that she couldn't open up herself. Yeah. She couldn't be open, or she didn't feel like she could be open and honest herself. She didn't feel like she'd be do that to me because um, because I was her son. So that would have been yeah. almost showing weakness to her son, which yeah. you know I hold. I wish she could have been, and I wish I could have created that. But then that's you know I, I can't hold regrets. I, I don't choose right. to because um, you know I did the best that I could have done at the time. Um, yeah. And I've said this to a lot of people who have tried to help through suicide. You know, you, you can't, we can't go blame her. No. We, um, we were probably doing our best at the time. We didn't know anything about it. So the root cause is therefore just creating an environment around everybody in this world globally yeah. uh, so that they can speak open and honestly about their, their, not just their feelings, their emotions. And so going on to what you're saying about, you know, breaking a leg, you, you know what that therefore leads to that the doctor you know the process it's like a kid you fall over you, you know my four-year-old he's he skins his knee he'll know to sort of want to get a plaster be a paw patrol yeah. plaster because that's a cool plaster but he knows what's that's what's to do <laughs> <laughs> but then but yeah, when you think of uh, so now the conversations we're trying to have with our kids yeah. is um yeah we understand you're frustrated you know how does that frustration feel yeah. are you angry you know and just trying to get these uh, this this conversation going so they can understand the language and yeah. I, I bring that into into therefore the the education you know and the preventative because often yeah. we we talk about um oh yes yeah, like this is what I, I don't like is like oh yeah that person's got mental health issues it's like we've all got mental health issues yeah we've all got mental health that changes on a, on a daily yeah. on an hourly um rate and it's the same with our physical health and it's all connected um so so therefore our mental health is on a on a sliding gray scale, um, yeah. and sometimes it can be good, and sometimes it can be bad. So we just need to be open, honest about that, and not say that someone has a mental health problem. You know, yes, there are cases, of course, where they're diagnosed with a mental health um, yeah. case, um, as in a, a, a mental health disorder. Um, but with other stuff, we just we need to get better at the language. So, and and then finally, as you're saying, with the military aspect. I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because I have been brought up in a world where, you know, to go to the Olympics in the ski racing world, it is an individual sport, but trust me, you are, you're having to be argy-bargy with all the, the guys around me competing for the spot, competing to get the British ski team, et cetera, et cetera, competing to get the Olympic spot. So therefore, it was all about showing no weakness. And then I get into the flying world. It's all about showing no weakness because that is exact. That was ruthless. You know, to be a fighter yeah. pilot, you, you've got to you've got to hold your own. Mm. But what I've what I've realized over that time is you can still hold your own, but you can still tell someone if you're having a bad day and the reasons yeah. why. 
and, and and that's that's what we need to sort of feed in and i i try to bring it into the squadron life let's call it that with um, some of the guys that i flew yeah. with and worked with and one of the ways we did was going out to operation shader so again the final die issue it's um yeah. the, the enduring operations over iraq and, and syria and that is you know it's quite a big thing for people because they're going to be dropping bombs uh, you know for yeah. the first time in their life and um and, and doing that kind of work where they signed up to it but they never realized yeah. that they might for example take someone's life yeah. um and you know and that's that's big on people so therefore um you know my idea was to get the all the pilots um or not just the pilots all the squadron in a room together and get people starting to talk open and honestly so start talking about their experiences you know like i could mm. talk about mine because at this stage i'd already done um one tour i did i ended up doing three tours and i could, so i could talk about my first tour and say what i learned and why and how how did it make me feel and yeah. you know how was it any different um how did it compare to the training because therefore like i was going back to you know the aurelius and and how your storytelling so therefore you're you're mm. saying this is how it made me feel. It might not do that to you, but at least you've got benchmark. Yeah. At least you can have a think of like, yeah. oh yeah, I know when I get into this position, it might make me feel like this. Yeah. And that really helped. And I, but I remember the, the the machoism coming in where one of the guys didn't say anything. And then we actually went into a pub crawl, as you do uh, afterwards. Um, it was like, it was our sort of before we were going out the door on ops. So yeah. we, we tailed off our training and, and yeah, got on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> around lossy mouth of all places. And, <laughs> and, and as we were going around, um, after a few beers in, this this um, guy came over to you and he started like sort of chest poking. And that chest poking quickly got into, yeah, but oh, and can you just tell me more about this and, and how? Yeah. So he he obviously he didn't feel comfortable saying it in a group, but he felt comfortable after, after a few beers. Like because therefore. you had opened up to him. If yeah. you hadn't have done that, then his opportunity wouldn't have existed. And yeah. and as much as like you said the importance of getting everyone to talk and everyone to be honest about it some people still and well lots of people still are going to be sat there going no I don't want to show that I don't want to and like I said the military of all places you'd imagine that that is the place where people are going to go bravado and yeah no whatever and super tough about yeah. things and yeah you know so so Roger I'm honestly I'm so so grateful you've come on today so grateful and I'm conscious of your time because this has been amazing but we've been chatting for a while so tell my audience where they can some of the charities you work with and where they can find out more and how they can help support you in this yeah sure we're um I'm an ambassador for headfit.org and I, I want to put that out there because it is aimed at the military the British military but honestly, anyone can just look into headfit.org. You don't need any subscription. There is no money involved. And it's just really good education. There's there's loads of different exercises that it talks about. You know, things like um, a bit of green is one of the mental fitness tools. So therefore, going for a walk in nature. Actually, there's science behind that. And there's a reason why we, we should do that. You know, breathing techniques, which is obvious. We hear about that and associate with mental health. Body posture feedback. You know, actually, how does it make you feel? like when you push your shoulders back and you sort of raise your your chin and lengthen your spine it makes you feel more confident so therefore how the body and mind is connected so anyway i could go on about all that you know uh, on about it all day but that's headfit.org so please check it out because that's when i talk about the preventative stuff then that is the best place to go and then and i was 
as I was talking about before, it's the um, uh, Heads Together, um, and that's who have been raising money uh, for for a while, and they they grow a lot of different projects under them. Um, so that was started off by the Royal Foundation. So I'm a big believer in them. But there, there's I've, I've been raising money for a few different mental health charities, and we've now raised over twenty five thousand uh, pounds. So so and and it's been you know such an amazing adventure, doing lots of crazy cycling things on turbo trainers for sixteen hours, uh, and um, and you know and, and different things. Uh, so there's Mind, which is really uh, predominantly based in in England, but at uh, UK. And then you've got Scott Association of Mental Health, so Sam H. Uh, that's really good. Um, Help for Heroes, um, and there's there's there really are countless charities that you can go and get help from straight away. Um, and you know, if you need immediate assistance, um, you can actually as a, from Heads Together. It's called Shout, and it's like a text message service um, where someone is is there and and can help you uh, straight away so if you text shout to 85258 in the UK uh, and then they will give you immediate support there's obviously if you, if you really need urgent support then um, Samaritans um, uh, give them a call and then uh, like I said there's a cam which is the campaign against living miserably for men um, and because you know they say that the highest suicide rate in, in the UK is in men at about I think 30 to 45 or 35 to 45 um, and yeah there's 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 lots of different um, charities I could read them all out but um, hey, they, that's amazing. They, they all do fantastic work and and again if um with with my book uh, to to plug that where I can yeah um, absolutely so, please do yeah yeah we'll so link up yeah no thank you because um so speed of sound sound of mind the every penny goes to charity and um, we've just put it out there um to try and raise awareness as i said to to do a bit of jack and nori and and share my story and don's story as well so you can find that on amazon and just pay for an amazon that's for the kindle version or the electronic version but if you want a hard copy of the book then just go to my facebook page which is where i do most of my my campaigning so that's facebook.com forward slash speed of sound 2016 and on there send me a message and i'll get a hard copy to you in the post and uh, obviously uh, we'll put the links and everything out and um, because i mean thank you so much for having me on your show because it, it helps so much for me to for me to talk open honestly about my story to to spread my story and to help people in that way but also to, just to to spread the awareness using the you know the different social media and to all your wonderful audience as well yeah, honestly, Roger, I have been so grateful for you coming on, so grateful for you sharing this story, which is an incredibly tough story to share. So I couldn't be more thankful. Thank you so much, Roger. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. What did you think? I could have talked to him all day, not just because his accent is lovely, but his story is phenomenal and so moving. And whether it's because of what happened to me and losing my mum last year, I don't know. But I just thought there was a lot to learn from that. And I know it's not your typical business episode, but I, I really want to hear what you thought. I really want to hear, yeah, what, what you thought this episode, whether you found it useful, what uh, what you took from it. So please do come and let me know. We love hearing from you and I'd love you to support Roger and go and follow him, go and uh, look at his stuff 
and go and find him on social media and all the links are in the show notes as always as are the links to his books and all the charities he's talked about so I will make sure they're all there and uh like I said I hope you enjoyed it so we are back on Thursday for a small business superstar podcast and then I will see you next week for a solo episode Thank you so much for listening to the Marketing That Converts podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please do go check out TeresaHeathWearing.com where you'll find more amazing content to help you grow your business.